As we begin the message this morning, let me give you a question to ponder. And it is this. Do you spend much time thinking about eternity? Honestly now, do you, do you spend much time thinking about eternity? Let me be more specific. Do you spend much time thinking about the reality of heaven and hell? The reason why I ask that question is because this life is so real to us, but the next life is very unreal to us. I admit that I don't spend all that much time thinking about heaven and hell, at least not as much as I ought to. We are living in a wonderful and fascinating time in human history because we are living in a time of amazing technology and advancement. One of the downsides, however, is that because so many things for us today are instant, they're right at our fingertips, we are conditioned to expect instant gratification, and that works against the importance of being patient for delayed gratification. That's probably part of the reason why heaven and hell don't occupy our thoughts very much. It is a fact that some of the greatest songs about heaven have been written about people going through immense hardship. You see, there's a, there's a sense in which that forces you to focus on the next life. But those realities of heaven and hell seem too far out in the distance to demand our attention now. That's why it's so important for us to remember the truth of James 4.14, which says your life is just a vapor or a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes away. Compared to eternity, this life is just a vapor. It's just a mist. Therefore, Jesus often used strong words to try to force people to think about the reality of heaven and hell. For example, he said, lay up treasure in heaven. He talked a lot about heaven. He also talked a lot about hell. He didn't hesitate to teach that hell is a literal place where people will exist for eternity. The text to which we come this morning is one of those passages. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 9 as we come to the end of this powerful chapter in Mark's gospel. I encourage you to follow along as I read verses 42 through 50 of Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, 
where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with, with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. These are, as you can see, very strong words from Jesus. This strong passage from Jesus comes right on the heels of two very important incidents in the lives of the disciples. In verses 33 through 37, they were arguing over who is the greatest. So Jesus had to address their wrong attitudes by directing them towards servanthood. Then, in verses 38 through 41, they revealed a heart of prideful exclusivity by trying to forbid someone from ministering for the Lord simply because he wasn't from their group. So Jesus had to address that wrong attitude also. And those two stories have, of course, preoccupied our thinking the last two weeks. That would explain why Jesus ends this passage with the brief command and have peace with one another. They weren't at peace with each other when they were arguing over who was the greatest. And they weren't at peace when they were trying to forbid another Christian brother from ministering for the Lord in a way the Lord approved. So Jesus told them to have peace with one another. But before he gets to that point, he seeks to lift them above their pettiness by giving them an eternal perspective, an eternal scope of things. He wants them to see how petty their arguments were in light of the reality of eternal hell. You see, when we lose sight of the reality of heaven and hell, it's very easy for us to get bogged down in petty issues that really pale in light of eternity. So Jesus seeks to refocus his men by reminding them that the issues of life that are most important are those that have eternal consequences and eternal ramifications and eternal implications. Those are the things that ought to preoccupy our attention, not the petty things we often get focused on in life. So that's the motivation behind these strong words of our Lord. He wants to give his men a bigger picture, an eternal perspective, an eternal dimension on how to view life. Notice how he begins in verse 42. He says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. That is strong, is it not? A millstone was a large stone used for grinding grain. Some were so large that it took an animal to move it or an animal to turn it in place to grind the grain. So when Jesus talks about something like that being hung around someone's neck 
and the person being thrown into the depth of, of the sea, then you know this is serious. Gentiles used this form of execution, and therefore it was particularly repulsive to the Jews. So Jesus made this strong statement purposely to shock and grab the attention of all who heard it, or those who would eventually hear it, and those of us who would eventually read it. Don't cause his little ones to sin. Don't cause children to sin. Sin is so serious that we ought to go to whatever lengths necessary to deal with it and eradicate it from our lives. Beloved, these are strong words to those who would cause the Lord's people, the Lord's little ones, to sin. Woe to those who encourage their Christian spouse or children to lie or cheat. Woe to those who try to force their Christian employees to lie or cheat. Woe to those men who try to seduce a Christian woman into immorality or vice versa. Woe to the man who asks his Christian wife or girlfriend to watch immoral entertainment. Woe to the co-worker who coerces his Christian co-worker to cheat the boss or cheat the company in some way. Whatever the specific may be, the Lord considers it very serious when people cause his children to sin by coercion or encouragement or even by example. But let me add a point of clarification. In saying this, Jesus is not suggesting that when we sin at someone else's prompting or prodding or temptation, that that somehow releases us from responsibility. No, no. In other words, Jesus is not saying that when other people prompt us to sin by their actions or by their words or by their enticements, that means we are not responsible for our choices. Not at all. We are responsible for our own actions. We are responsible for our own choices. Granted, people may lure us into sin or even push us into sin and thereby cause us to sin. But that doesn't take away from our own responsibility. So we dare not use the words of Jesus here to excuse our actions by saying, well, it was his fault because he caused me to sin by such and such. such. There may be, on occasion, some truth to that statement. But that doesn't mean we are innocent. We are responsible for our choices. We are responsible for our own actions and reactions. However, that doesn't minimize the warning that Jesus gives here. Those who push the Lord's little ones to sin or tempt them to sin, or entice them to sin, or lure them into sin, or cause them to sin in any way, face a severe judgment, which is why Jesus adds the next verse. Verse 43. He says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, Gehenna, the Greek word, lake of fire, into the fire that shall never be quenched. This is not the first time Jesus said something like this. 
He used very similar wording in the Sermon on the Mount when he referred to the importance of dealing with lust in a severe manner. And now he uses the same kind of terminology in relation to any sin. He is basically saying this, that you and I should go to whatever extent necessary to conquer sin in our lives. Obviously, we need to recognize that Jesus is using hyperbole when he talks about cutting off your hand. Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry that sin is a problem in the heart. That's where it begins. He says, out of the abundance of the heart comes forth all of these things. So cutting off your hand isn't really going to solve the problem because then you would simply sin with the other hand. And if you cut off both of your hands, you could still find other ways to sin. So the point Jesus is making here is that we should go to whatever extent necessary to conquer sin. Whatever you have to do to conquer sin, do it. It doesn't matter how costly it is. It doesn't matter how inconvenient it is. It doesn't matter how radical it is. Jesus said, deal with it radically. The fact is, some people are so in love with their sin and so enslaved to their sin that they are not willing to let go of it to turn to Christ in faith. So Jesus adds this warning. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. If some sin is holding you back from the kingdom, then you better come to grips with it and do whatever is necessary to turn from it, to turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a high price to pay to be cast into hell because you weren't willing to let go of sin to turn to Christ. I was recently interacting with a man via email, a man who was pursuing a relationship with a married woman. And he said to me in this email interaction, well, basically this, this is an exact quote, if I end up going to hell because of this, so be it. What idiocy. What lunacy. And the amazing thing about it is that I had not even brought up the subject of hell at all in our interaction. But that is exactly the kind of person that Jesus is addressing here in this text. The person who would hold on to his sin even if it means going to hell. Verse 44 reads, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This verse in verse 46 isn't in some of your Bibles, depending on what translation you have, because it isn't in many early, early manuscripts. It does occur down in verse 48, which is a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. So we'll talk about it when we get down to verse 48. But just in case we haven't gotten the message by now, just in case this hasn't been strong enough already, and just in case we haven't seen how serious this matter is to Jesus, he adds the next statement, verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into Gehenna, hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Here, Jesus continues to push the principle 
of radical amputation to show how seriously we ought to take all sin. Sin is serious, beloved, whatever the sin is. It should be taken seriously, never minimized, never trivialized. So if there is a sin that is holding you back from turning to Christ in salvation, you need to deal with that sin radically. If it happens to be a sin that involves going somewhere to do it, where you walk there, Jesus says, cut off your foot. Again, it is obvious that Jesus is using hyperbole when he talks about cutting off your, your foot. All sin is a matter of the heart, first and foremost. Scripture is clear on that. The heart is what drives it. So cutting off your foot isn't going to solve the problem because then you would simply find another way to get there, to get to your sin. And if you cut off both feet, then you could still find a way to get there. So the point that Jesus is making here is clear. We go to whatever extent necessary to conquer sin, whatever it happens to be. Sin is a grievous thing. It is an enslaving thing. We don't realize how devastating and damaging it is. We don't don't hate it as we ought to. It may even just be a nuisance to us, and we think, man, I wish I could quit this or stop that, and we may just see it as a nuisance and not really hate it as we ought to hate it. We don't see how awful it really is to God and how damaging it is in our lives. Our tendency is to minimize it and underestimate its heinous nature to God and its infectious nature in our lives. That's why Jesus uses such strong words in this text. Jesus uses these shocking words because he's trying to drive home his point in a dramatic way. He is trying to get us to see how serious sin really is. We don't naturally see that, beloved, because we are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, by practice. That's just who we are. That's what we are. We just get used to sin. It's not that big of a deal to us often. And even if we do begin to understand how grievous it is, our tendency is to focus only on the external acts of sin. Murder is terrible. Adultery is terrible. Stealing is terrible. Lying is terrible. Yes, they are. But we can't stop there. Hatred is also terrible. Lust is also terrible. Envy or coveting is also terrible. Pride is also terrible. If we don't go beyond the external acts to the heart issues when dealing with sin, then we're only chopping off branches. We're only chopping off fruit. We're only dealing with the fruit and not the root. That's not enough. Jesus wants us to see that we need to deal with both the fruit and the root. Whatever the sin might be, whatever it would happen to be, it needs to be dealt with severely. Don't trivialize it. Don't take it lightly. In fact, next Jesus mentions the eye. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into 
hell fire. Again, the Greek word Gehenna, which would have been such a vivid picture to the, the hearers and readers because Gehenna was the, the Hinnom Valley just outside of Jerusalem. It was the garbage pit, the garbage dump where the fires never stopped burning and worms would accumulate there and all the filth and all the trash was, was placed there and it would burn and burn and burn and they never let the fires go out and, and because of the trash and the stink, it, it would, it would uh, summon or call worms. That was the, the Greek word Jesus uses here. Gehenna translated properly hell. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better if you enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than two eyes to be cast into Gehenna or hell fire. Once again, we need to recognize that Jesus is using hyperbole when he talks about plucking out your eye. He made it clear in Matthew 5 that lust is a problem in the heart. So plucking out your eye isn't going to solve the problem because then you would simply lust with your other eye. And if you plucked out both, then you could still continue lusting in your thoughts, in your mind, in your heart. So again, the point that Jesus is making is that you go to whatever extent necessary to conquer lust. Whatever it takes. If, if that means you don't own a television, then don't own a television. It's that simple. If television feeds your lust and stirs up your lust, don't own a television. If you have to get rid of your computer, get rid of your computer. If you have to disconnect your internet service, disconnect it. If you have to change your travel schedule and or arrangements, change them. Whatever you have to do to conquer lust, do it. doesn't matter how costly it is or how convenient it is or how radical it is. Jesus said, deal with it radically. I can remember a couple years ago working with a man who was, had this enslavement, lust, pornography. And I suggested these things to him. And, and you should have seen the look on his face. Just flabbergasted. Like, what? Are you serious? You can't get rid of your computer. I need my computer to work. I've got to have internet to work. Well, what is more important, your convenience or your spiritual life? What is more important, your convenience or your marriage? What is more important, your convenience or your mental health? What is more important, your convenience or your soul? Some men are so in love with their lust and so enslaved to their lust that they're not willing to let go of it to turn to Christ in faith. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything when I say lust is a gripping sin, enslaving and down through the centuries, many men, the fact is, many men have chosen lust instead of salvation. If you're familiar with the story of Augustine, or Augustine, however you prefer to pronounce his name, you know, if you've read his story, that lust was the sin that almost kept him from giving his life to Christ. His eternal destiny hung in the balance while he struggled with whether or not to turn from lust to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And then he adds this verse 48, which is duplicated a couple times earlier in some of our English translations and some Greek manuscripts. He says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Anyone who lived around Jerusalem would have known that immediately. They knew what Gehenna was. 
They, they knew exactly. So Jesus just adds this, this descriptive phrase. It's a quote, actually, from Isaiah. This is the second time in this text that Jesus referred to the everlasting fire of hell. In verse 43, he said, The fire that shall never be quenched. And here he quotes Isaiah 66, 24, by saying, Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. As unpopular as it was, Jesus had no hesitation asserting that men and women who die without salvation will spend eternity in hell. He says it is a place of fire, it is a place of torment, and it is everlasting. Not only is the fire everlasting, so is the torment. We know that from many, many passages of Scripture. For example, in Revelation 14, 10, and 11, it says of the one who refuses Christ, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 20, verse 10, describes the fate of unbelievers by saying, quote, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Matthew 8, 12, Jesus said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That last part of that phrase is a fascinating description, gnashing of teeth, because it's difficult to know specifically which direction that gnashing is going. What I mean is, some people believe that it's a reference to gnashing of teeth in writhing pain, while others, based on some passages, think that it is referring to the gnashing of teeth in the, in the sense of defiance against God. Or maybe it's both. People will gnash their teeth in pain and gnash their teeth in defiance of Almighty God for His judgment. Luke 13, 27 and 28 records the words of Jesus on Judgment Day when he will say, quote, I tell you, I do not know you. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus also described hell as a place of outer darkness. Several times he used that phrase, outer darkness. You know, it's not uncommon to hear unbelievers make the comment, I want to go to hell so I can party with my friends. Listen to me. There won't be any partying in hell, and there won't be any friends to see for interaction because hell will be outer darkness, pitch black darkness. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that God did not create hell for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. Yet people will end up there because they love darkness rather than light. It is by no means a pleasant thought or one we can fully comprehend, but, beloved, this is clearly what Scripture teaches. It is understandable that some people want to deny the doctrine of the eternal torment of the lost. It is understandable because it's, it's such a horrendous thing to try to contemplate. 
But even though it's understandable that people want to believe in a second chance or people want to believe in annihilation, that is, that people will be in hell just for a while, then they'll cease to exist. Even though it's understandable that people want to go there and they're thinking, say, oh, maybe God will change his mind and there'll be a second chance or maybe they'll just be consumed. That is just not defensible biblically. It just isn't. Jesus said these things more than any other writer in all of Scripture. If you throw out the doctrine of hell, you have to throw out the credibility of Jesus. He said it more than anyone else, more than Peter, Paul, Luke, James, John. Jesus had more to say about hell than all of them. There is no second chance for people in hell. And they do not cease to exist after a while. Their punishment is never-ending. Those who die in rebellion against God, those who die without the Lord's salvation, will spend eternity in hellfire, just as Jesus says here. That is not a threat. It is a gracious warning. If you die and end up there, you cannot say that you were never warned. You have been warned right now. You have been warned today. And then Jesus closes this passage with a reminder to his disciples. He says in verse 49, For everyone... Now, translations are different here, so yours may read a little bit differently. Everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. This is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to interpret. And therefore, about 15 possible explanations have been suggested. One of the reasons why it is so difficult is because there aren't any other parallels anywhere else in the Bible. In other words, what I mean is sometimes a key to a passage, a difficult passage, is to find another passage that is same wording, and then you can go there and you can say, oh yeah, now I see what this is saying. You can make comparisons. But there aren't any other parallels anywhere else in the Bible of this statement by Jesus. So you have to wrestle with what Jesus is saying here and here alone. You can't cross-reference really. The statement begins with the word for, which lets us know that this verse is somehow connected to what Jesus has been saying in verses 43 through 48. He says, for, let me explain this a little further. Allow me to elaborate. Also notice, Jesus uses the word everyone in this verse. Unless there are clear reasons not to, it is best to understand that word to mean exactly what it says. Everyone. You know, unconditional. Everyone. We also know that the primary purpose for salt in the first century was as a preservative to keep things preserved. So if you put all of those thoughts together, here's what I believe Jesus was saying in this enigmatic statement. Everyone is going to be salted with fire in a time and manner appropriate to their relationship with Jesus. Everyone is going to be salted with fire in a time and manner appropriate to their relationship with Jesus. For unbelievers, this will involve the preserving fire of final judgment, just as we talked about. 
For believers, this will involve the refining fire of present trials and suffering. Everyone is going to experience fire in some sort and in some way. Unbelievers are going to be preserved in the fire of final judgment because they will not cease to exist and their judgment will be unending. Believers are going to be preserved through the fire of trials and suffering as those experiences purify us to cause us to be more effective. Everyone is going to be salted with fire in a time and manner appropriate to their relationship with Jesus. In light of those realities, Jesus adds the final verse, verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, remember why, why or what Jesus is saying here and why he is saying it. He is basically, let me paraphrase, because hell is real, because hell is eternal, and because the Lord's people are called to be salt and light in the midst of a lost world, Jesus closed this teaching by challenging his men to be salty. He challenged his men to be effective as his representatives. He's saying, listen, men, this is no game. This is, you know, men's souls are at stake. Men's lives are at stake. Hell is real. You need to be salt. You need to be light. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The salt that was common in Israel was salt that came from the Dead Sea. That salt, because it has a lot of other minerals in it, can lose its saltiness. It can lose its flavor. When that happens, it ceases to be effective as a preservative, and the only usage for it is to throw it down on trails and paths to keep grass and other vegetation from growing on the path. Now, the people in the first century would have known all of this. This was their culture. This was their life. So Jesus was basically using an analogy to warn them that the same kind of thing can happen with them and can happen with us. If we're not careful, we can lose our saltiness. We can lose our effectiveness as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can lose our flavor. Uh, in other words, we can lose our impact and our potency and our strength and our influence. It's interesting to note that the word you in Matthew 5.13, where Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, the you is emphatic in that text, in the original language. It's strongly emphasized. You could actually translate, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. You're it. You and I are it. Those of us who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are the only salt and the only light in this world in relation to eternity. Sure, unsaved people do some brilliant things in this world, some great accomplishments, but not in relation to eternity. You and I are it, beloved. We're it. And that is an amazing responsibility. So what does it mean that we are salt? There are a number of aspects to that illustration. For one thing, salt adds flavor. In a similar way, we are the ones, as believers, 
who should bring flavor to life, fullness to life. As Christians, we are not to be boring and dull and nondescript. We should excel in the way we live life. We should excel in our responsibilities, in our jobs, our marriages, or whatever we happen to be involved in. We're salt. Another thing salt does is it preserves. This clearly is a major emphasis of what Jesus was saying. And he was reminding us that we are a preserving influence in the world, in your company, in your neighborhood, in your school, in whatever circle. You are to be a preserving influence. Our lives and our influence hold back the tendency of those around us to continue to spiral, spiral downward or go the wrong direction. We are salt. Another thing salt does is it creates a thirst. Thus, when Jesus calls on us to be salt, he is saying that our lives should create a thirst in others for what it means to know him, what it means to follow him. As people see the difference in our lives, the difference that Christ makes, that often creates a thirst in them, an intrigue, an interest in them to know why we are different. What has made the difference in our lives? The Lord has. So our lives should point others to the Lord. Thus Jesus says here in verse 50, have salt in yourselves. In other words, be flavorful, be a preserving influence, be the kind of person who creates a thirst in others for the Lord. That's what's most important in light of eternity. You may be the only person in another person's life who can be salt to influence that person away from hell. It's basically what Jesus is saying. You need to be salt because hell is real and people are headed there. And then Jesus adds the final phrase, and be at peace with one another. Don't, don't bicker and fight and be petty over things that pale in light of eternity. Be at peace with one another and concentrate on what is most important in light of eternity, which is the importance of being salty salt. That was our Lord's message to his men in the first century, and it's his message to us here in the 21st century. As he gave this message to his disciples, he reminded them of the reality of eternal hell. In light of that reality, I must ask you a question this morning. I don't know everyone here this morning, not by any means. I don't know everyone gathered here. So I have to ask you, what is holding you back from surrendering your life to Christ? Whatever it is, Jesus said, deal with it harshly. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Pluck out your eye if that's what is holding you back. Jesus said it's better to enter into eternal life maimed or blind instead of ending up in hell with a healthy body. Jesus was not teaching that there is some kind of value in self-mutilation. He was saying that you do whatever is necessary to make sure you have repented of your sins and you have received God's salvation. You let go of whatever is holding you back. Nothing is worth holding on to if it leads to eternal hell. Absolutely nothing. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head, I ask you that question again. What is holding you back from surrendering your life to Christ? Is there something? 
If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never surrendered him, what is holding you back? Hear the words of Jesus. Hear the severity in his teaching. That you do whatever you have to do. You let go of whatever you have to let go of. You deal with it harshly to make sure that nothing holds you back from surrendering to Christ. So I I repeat that message to you today. If you're here today, you're not a member of the kingdom of God, you're not a member of the family of God, you're not right with God, and you know it because there's something there that you're unwilling to let go of, let go of it. Turn to Christ. Yield to Him. And if you are a child of God, then hear what Jesus is saying to us, to you and to me. He is saying, hell is for real, and people are going there. And you and I are their only chance. You and I are their only chance to hear, to see what they need to see or hear what they need to hear to avoid going to hell. So we need to take this seriously. We need to be salt, salty. We need to be light. And remember that we live in light of eternity because people's eternal destiny, their eternal destiny is at stake. And often it's related to our influence in their lives. So take this stuff seriously. And if there's sin in your life, don't say, well, this is just a message for unbelievers. No, it's the, the application is for you and for me. Then deal with it harshly. Get rid of it. Cut it off. Pluck out your eye, whatever you have to do so that you can be salt and light and really be effective to impact people's eternal destiny. Whatever, wherever you're at spiritually today, there is a message for you and for me in this text. May God grant that we would hear it, really hear it, and embrace it and respond accordingly. Father, this is not a pleasant text of Scripture, but certainly a very important one. We know how much the Lord Jesus loved and loves, so we by no means take these words as unloving. On the contrary, It was his heart and compassion that caused him to warn about the reality of eternal hell, to warn people about the potential of ending up there, the place that was created by you for the devil and his angels where people choose to go. Father, may we have ears to hear. Whatever our spiritual condition, if there are people here among us this morning who are not right with you, and there is something holding them back that they've been unwilling to let go of in the past, may you break their grip so that today they would surrender to Christ, repent of sin, and come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and avoid the reality of eternal hell. And for those of us who are your people, may we live our lives in such a way that we're salty, that we realize that this life that we live and this this adventure that we're on is, is for, for real. It's for keeps. It has eternal implications. And so may we live our lives accordingly, remembering to be salt and light, to be used by you to impact, whether in planting, watering, sowing, reaping, some phase of the process to rescue men and women from their 
destiny toward hell. Father, may we take the words of Jesus as seriously as he intended them when he spoke them and when Mark recorded them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Use your word in our lives this day and in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.